when we engage in unjust judgment, we not only disrespect our fellow believer, but we place ourselves above his law, above his commandments. And in essence, we're placing ourselves above God. We're placing ourselves against the one and only judge and lawgiver. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl will conclude his lesson on the problem of judging in the book of James chapter 4. Let's join Pastor Carl as he gives us a few practical ways we can apply this portion of Scripture in our everyday lives. The standard is we are to love one another as the King has loved us. Every disciple is to love one another as Christ has loved us. John will say this in 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And in this context, the way to start by getting down dirty and real when he gives this new commandment is he gets down and he serves those men and he washes their feet. <clears throat> A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. By this, verse 35, by what? By witnessing your love for your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Tertullian, the great church leader, about a century later commented that the pagans would repeatedly say, see how these Christians love one another. And of course, love took on a new meaning and a new power after Christ gave this command when he literally laid down his life in our place. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. This has nothing to do with a fireman rushing into a building to save someone. It has everything to do with the Lord Jesus who laid down his life for you. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, he made this forgiveness real and the power to carry it out possible. By this all men will know you are my disciples. If, it's a conditional statement, if you have love for one another. The mark of the royal law, the mark of true discipleship, is not the doctrinal statements you ascribe to. Some people think, by this all men, we will know we are his disciples if you are fundamental in the faith. Listen, if you know me, I believe in biblical orthodoxy. I believe not in the way the cooperative Baptists in our state are defining inerrancy. They have it in their church statements. They don't mean what Jesus meant. They say the Bible is inerrant in its ability to lead you maybe to the Lord, but not in every single word. And that's why First Baptist Church of Greenville, South Carolina is doing gay marriages. No, I believe every single word down to the tenths to the smallest jot or tittle is inspired. That there's not a single error. I believe that Christ literally, physically, actually died in our place as an object of the wrath of the Father, bearing the judgment that we deserved, that he proved his sinlessness when he didn't just spiritually get raised from the dead, but when he literally, actually, physically came out of the grave in a resurrection body. And yes, I believe Jesus is actually coming again to judge the living and the dead. But with all that said... 
an unbelieving world first looks at our testimony. And you can ascribe to a sound doctrinal statement, but when there's gossip and backbiting and talking and division, you don't have their ear. Jesus plainly said the badge of discipleship is love for one another even as he loved us. That's why God knows nothing of an unchurched New Testament believer. He knows nothing of these Christians who just float. He knows nothing of these Christians who just show up on Sunday morning at 11 and get in nowhere and never get their hands dirty. You can't love the people of God if you don't know the people of God. So James says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks against the law, and judges the law. So this sin, one, breaks the royal law, and that we're called to love one another. And secondly, it breaks the standard that God has set for us. When we speak down on a brother, we're taking the role of a judge in a courtroom. We're putting ourselves in the place of the law. We don't even give people the benefit of the doubt, uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt that our own court system does, that the person is innocent until he is proven guilty. And so we've set ourselves up not just against our fellow brother, we've set ourselves up against God. Now there's a progression here. I hope you've seen it. To speak against a brother is to judge a brother and to speak against the law. When you speak against God's law, you have become a judge of the law rather than a doer of the law. And that does not please the Lord. Look at it. You are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So simply said, when we obey the law of love, when we lay aside unfair, unjust criticism, then we're not criticizing and critiquing God's law. He doesn't call you to judge his law. He calls it to judge your life. He doesn't call you to criticize his law. He calls his law to critique you and me. We are to obey it. You know, many times a family get in the car, they leave a place like this. Happens every Sunday all across America. On the way home or at the dinner table, they have roast preacher. And they wonder why their kids grow up rebellious. Because they've undermined the authority of the word of God that is spoken by the pastor. And so they criticize the pastor. They criticize the adult Bible fellowship leader. And so they leave unchanged because they don't really come listening for a word from God. They've come to evaluate the preacher, to judge the preacher. They're circulating in their mind what they think he's doing wrong. And they wonder why they're not growing and being changed and formed in the image of Christ. It's unjust judgment. And when we do this in the family of God, we're placing ourselves in the role of a judge. Remember the Pharisees? They tithe the mint, the dill, and the cumin, the smallest spices in the garden. But what did they do? They dishonored their parents. They weren't doers of the law. They were judges of the law. Now, very quickly, we're almost out of time. In addition to judges to disrespect God's people and to judges to disrespect God's principles, thirdly here in verse 12, to judges to disrespect God's place. James now shows us that when we engage in unjust judgment, we not only disrespect our fellow believer, but we place ourselves above his law, above his commandments, 
And in essence, we're placing ourselves above God. We're placing ourselves against the one and only judge and lawgiver. Look at verse 12. There is only one. You should circle that word one. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, James is stressing here that God alone is the sovereign lawgiver and that God alone is the sovereign judge of the universe. There's only one lawgiver. And so we are to be about obeying his law and not ours because the law originates with him and not with us. There's only one lawgiver and judge. There's only one judge. Only one has the power to destroy and to save Moses affirmed that all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to these words as God spoke through the pen of Moses. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and, I, and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Hannah acknowledged the same truth in 1 Samuel 2.6. The Lord kills it makes alive. And this is why the Lord Jesus gave this severe and chilling warning. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. These verses illustrate what James is affirming. There is only one who can save and destroy, and he alone, in the sense that Jesus and James is using the word judge, have a right to judge. And when you speak down against your fellow human being, when you read their motives that you cannot read, you are setting yourselves up as lawgiver and judge, and there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Only one God, one judge, and he hasn't asked for any help from you or from me. Only one. Only one executioner. Only one savior. Because there's only one redeemer who has given that right. And so Jesus said, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. All judgment belongs to Jesus Christ because he's redeemed us with his precious blood. And since you and I do not have the power to redeem anyone, you and I cannot play the role that God is uniquely to play. He is the one who can save and to destroy. He alone has that power. So again, James is not ruling out civil courts, police officers, magistrates, discerning believers, spiritual shepherds who protect their people from false teaching. But he is rooting out the harsh, unkind, critical, judgmental, attacking spirit of someone who just comes to find fault. And when you judge a believer in that way, you are invading a territory that belongs uniquely to God. God hasn't appointed you or me to do that. As a matter of fact, the accuser of the brethren, the Bible teaches, is the devil. And you are no more like the devil when you take on that role. James, he's blunt. He's passionate. He knew the danger, and he certainly doesn't want us to cooperate with the devil. I mean, what made the devil the devil? His fall is recorded in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Those five I will statements of Isaiah, 14 times 2 is 28. Easy to remember, right? Isaiah 14 is equal 28. That's how I remembered it. I will ascend to heaven. 
I will raise my throne above God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And every time we judge unfairly, we're living like the devil, and we are usurping the right that God alone has, and you are casting your fellow brother or sister in Christ as your servant, as your slave. When they're not accountable to you, you're to serve them. They're accountable to God Almighty. Paul will write, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. So in summary, not to judge is not to be blind to false doctrine, to wolves that are trying to destroy the church, but it is a plea to be generous, to care for your fellow brother or sister in Christ. And so think about that again as I read one last time, verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Now listen to the rhetorical question that he asks. It's very powerful. But who are you who judge your neighbor? And of course, his simple answer is nobody. We are a bunch of nobodies who have been saved by the grace of God. I have that word, but, circled in my Bible. It's one of the strongest adversities found in the Greek New Testament. He's drawing a strong contrast between the sovereign judge and fallen sinful man. Sin, it inhibits our ability to see clearly. Now, you still have your finger in Matthew? Huh? Go back, Matthew chapter 7 for just a second. Matthew chapter 7. I hope you didn't lose it. Matthew 7, this is what Jesus was getting at. Why do you look at the speck? Verse 3, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? He takes this illustration from the carpentry shop where he spent nearly 30 years of his life in an apprenticeship, first for his with his dad and after his dad died. And in verse 3, he shows us that we are unfit to be judges because we are fallen human beings, that we are not God, we are not infallible. And he uses hyperbole to underscore the fallenness of man and our need to be careful when we make evaluations. Mofat, James Mofat, lived 100 years ago, did a powerful translation of the Greek New Testament that I read often. And he describes this as the parable of the splinter and the plank. The word for plank in Koine Greek was used of the joist in a home, that large supporting beam. And it's so large that if you have a telephone pole coming out of your eye, you can't get up close to me to see whether or not there's a speck there. You've got a plank of a problem of your own. And Jesus wants you to take the plank out of your eye before you can examine a speck in someone else. And it's an important principle. And it's the principle that those who are hypocritical tend to be hypercritical. Those who are hypocritical tend to be quite hypercritical. You say, what do you mean by hypercritical? Let me ask you a question. Can you see if there's a speck of sawdust in my eye this morning? You say, I can't see that far. In fact, I look blurry to some of you up there. You need to get your prescription changed. The only way you can see it is if you get up close and you look real carefully. But it would be absurd for you to see if there's a speck in my eye, if there's a two-by-four coming out of yours. So Jesus asks. 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log that is in your own eye. And then the first two words of verse five, you hypocrite. The hypocritical or the hypercritical. And the hypocrite will typically find what he is looking for. You know that every church has its speck hunters. People who specialize in specks without ever taking the log out of their own eye. And they'll always find typically what they're looking for. If you come here looking for respect this morning, you'll find one. If you've come here looking to criticize, you'll find something to criticize. If you came here to evaluate this preacher, this sermon, you'll find something wrong with me because we are a collection of sinners. But I want to tell you something. If you came here to find God this morning, you'll find him, I promise you. But you see, it's really easy to have this beautiful, rosy view of ourselves and this distorted, almost jaundiced view of your fellow man. So Jesus said, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not against taking a speck out of your brother's eye. He just wants to make sure the log is out of your own eye. My father practiced ophthalmology for 50 years, 50 years of surgery. When he began, he told me he did cataract surgery. You'd be in the hospital for 10 days with sandbags around your head. By the time he was finished operating, he did them in the office. And he would often say, hey, I have someone coming to the home. They've got a foreign body in their eye. And it always sounded kind of spooky to us, you know, a foreign body. Ooh. But it really, it was a foreign body. Because if someone had something in their eye, it didn't belong there. It was alien. It was dangerous to the human eye. And even in the spiritual realm, we are to be spiritual ophthalmologists, but we need to make sure first our own vision is clear. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's not surprising that there's a certain exercise that leadership does in the church, as Matthew 18, 15 affirm. We call it church discipline. Or Paul will say to the church at Galatia in the sixth chapter, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are spirit-filled, you who are spiritually mature, you who have removed the speck from your own eye, restore such a one. And the word for restore is a beautiful medical term. It was used of someone with a compound fracture where you'd bring the two bones together and reset it. Restore such a one and a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. The first century believers were involved in restoring. Their goal was not to count the brother as worthless, to throw him out as garbage, but if at all possible, to restore him. But again, James asked this powerful rhetorical question, who are you to judge your brother? We need to give the accused person the benefit of the doubt, innocent of all charges. At least our courts do that. They give people a chance to defend themselves. And people judge all the time on information they don't have. Now, let me close with some applications. Number one, while God has called us to hold up his standard to the world, he has also called us to obey his standard in the church. We're called to uphold the standard before an unbelieving world. That's not unkind. That's kind. 
You say, well, transgenderism is okay. Homosexuality is okay. You want to live with your girlfriend before you marry. It's okay. You're doing them a disservice. You're helping lead them to hell. I don't care if it's your brother, your sister, your mother, your, your own son or daughter or grandchild. Speak the truth. So while we are called to uphold the standard to an unbelieving world, we're also called to obey it in the church. Now, this portion of Scripture that we've been studying, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, the focus, as we've seen in this whole section starting in chapter 3, is not on the lost, but on the saved. And just in the immediate context, he has given all these imperatives, all these commands. Look at verse 7. There's a total of nine initially. Submit, therefore, to God, verse 7. Resist the devil, another command. Draw near to God, verse 8. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Verse 9, be miserable, mourn, weep. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And today, this final imperative, the 10th commandment, and the apostle James, do not speak against one another, brethren. Again, he's talking about the church. Not the folks out there, but the folks in here. In fact, this text, when you have what they call linguists, a present active imperative, and it's negated, there's a not before it. Do not speak against one another. Whenever God treats a verse like that grammatically, he is talking about things that they're already doing. In other words, he's saying, don't ever get into this problem. If you're not into the problem, don't get into it. But he's dealing with a problem that is real and alive and pulsating in the church. And in essence, he's saying, quit it, stop it. That's the first lesson. Secondly, while God has called us to speak dogmatically about his moral absolutes, we must be careful not to speak falsely against a brother. We need to speak dogmatically against, uh, with God's moral absolutes, but don't speak falsely against a brother. You may think you've assessed the situation properly, when in reality you have not. None of us are omniscient. Many times as a pastor, we are given information that we are privy to. And in pastoral confidence, we don't share it with other people. And sometimes people will look at your decision as an elder, as a pastor, as a deacon, and they'll judge you falsely. And it's easy to draw false conclusions because only God is omniscient and we are not called to play God. A lady was in the airport and waiting for her next flight and she grabbed a tea and a bag of cookies and she thought, I'll just get a little energy here before my flight is called. And she sat there and between her and a bag of cookies was another gentleman. And she reached over and grabbed the first cookie and began to eat it. And no sooner was she enjoying her cookie, the man next to her reached over, reached into the bag, and pulled out a cookie, and he began to eat it. She thought, Am I, is this real? This guy eating my cookie? She was somewhat perturbed. She said, oh, I'm not going to let this guy disturb me. And she went for her second cookie. And no sooner had she taken her second cookie, he reached over, and he took a cookie. Well, she started to get heated, and she thinks, should I say something to this gentleman? I'm not that kind of person, but maybe I need to. And finally, he reached over for the final cookie, and he broke it in half, and he ate the half. She had had enough 
She was out of there. She got into the airplane. She was steaming mad. She opened up her purse to adjust the makeup, and there was her unopened bag of cookies. You see, we think we're all-knowing. We think that we've got the preacher figured out. And we judge him, and we judge his motives. Or our brother, or our sister in Christ. And we're not omniscient. And I thank God that he didn't do that with us. The one who knows us the best loves us the most. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He was full of compassion. There's Zacchaeus down in Jericho up in that tree. He didn't say, you dirty crook, you skinflint, you robber, come on out of that tree. No, he said, Zacchaeus, come on down out of that tree. I want to go to your house. I want to have dinner with you. You see, we can look at people as dirty is unworthy and walk all over them. But God doesn't see us that way. He doesn't see us for what we are. He sees us for what we can become by the grace of God. And some of you are here and you are so guilty and you just feel like scum and hypocritical. And Christ died for you and he wants to give you new life and he will receive you. But you have to come on his terms through the blood of Christ. And some of you have done that, but you need to step back and say, am I the kind of person who builds up the church or am I here just to tear it down? Now, our Father, I thank you this morning for this section of Scripture. I pray today for someone who is listening to me who does not have the assurance that if this were their last day on earth, that heaven would be their home. They want it to be. They think it might be, but they've never come in faith. They've never believed what your word says, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, because you died for all of our sin and took all of its judgment and proved your ability to do it as the sinless son of God when you were raised from the dead that if we call on you, you will instantly and forever save us. Help someone, Spirit of God, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, I am so grateful for this fellowship of believers that are not known primarily as critics and judges. And yet during this time of COVID over all kinds of issues, you've raised up some issues where we need to be more caring and loving and not speaking against one another. So may we repent where we need to repent. May we experience the cleansing blood of Christ and walk in holiness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our goal as members of one another is to love each other as Christ first loved us. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. 
and requesting program James 010. Please remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.